Hello, and welcome to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. This is David Canfield. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you would like to send us comments or questions about the program or about the Christian life in general, you can send us an email at notes at thechristianfaith.org. And to subscribe to our e-letter, just click the subscribe link on the website and enter your email at that address. So this is our first program of the year, and uh, I need to begin kind of by giving a little update about where we are with the, the Christian Faith Radio Hour, because we began the program last year as a radio program here in Chicago on Saturday mornings, an hour-long program, and that's why we call it the Christian Faith Radio Hour. Uh, we began in May, uh, but that ended uh, at the end of the year, really on the last day of the year, uh, the last Saturday. Uh, and we just felt at this time at least not to continue with the radio program because we just did not see the response, the kind of response that justified uh, that kind of expense. But we did want to continue with the podcast, certainly I did, to uh, continue trying to get uh, the Lord's truth out to God's children. And so the idea is to do at least one podcast a week. We may do more. Um, they may not all be an hour. Some may be a little shorter vignettes to try to uh, uh, bring uh, smaller points before the Lord's children. Uh, but we'll see how the Lord leads. But the, the plan right now is to do at least one podcast a week and uh, possibly more uh, for the foreseeable future. So please pray for that and pray for this outreach. We'd appreciate that. So on the program today, uh, my feeling uh, has been to uh, deal with a system of teaching that is known as amillennialism. Now, most Christians today, evangelical and fundamental Christians, hold to uh, the dispensational view of the end times, which teaches that there is going to be a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. And you see that in Revelation chapter 20. Uh, Christ, uh, The angel comes down out of heaven and binds Satan for a thousand years and casts him into the abyss and shuts it over him. And then the overcoming believers reign with Christ during that time. That's called the millennial kingdom. And during that 1,000 years, all the, Old Testament, all the Old Testament promises to David and to the nation of Israel are fulfilled. So it's also called the Davidic kingdom, David's kingdom, uh, when Christ sits on the throne of his father David. So that's the view uh, of most, as I say, most evangelical and fundamental Christians today. But other Christians, uh, like in the Catholic Church, Orthodox churches, some other uh, traditions, they hold to the amillennial view. And that means, that when you say amillennial, that liter literally means without a millennium. Uh, it's just a negation. And so a millennial, to say amillennial means there's not going to be a millennium, at least not in the sense of the physical reigning of Christ on this present earth with his believers. Now, what amillennialism does teach, and one of the hardest things about this is going to be for me to pronounce that word correctly, what it does teach, it, they say that we're already in the millennium, that the language in Revelation chapter 20 is symbolic, uh, and that the millennium really began when Christ ascended to the throne in heaven, and it will continue up until the 
final rebellion of Satan, at which time Christ will descend from heaven, uh, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire, and then we will go into, right into the eternal uh, reign of God in the new heaven and new earth without having a 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth. So that's what they believe. Then the question is, well, what about the promises that God made to Israel in the Old Testament? What happens to those? And their view is that those are being fulfilled today in the church, that uh, the nation of Israel uh, no longer exists in any way, and God's not going to restore the nation of Israel because the church has superseded Israel uh, as uh, the Israel of God. It's, it's, it's the real Israel today, and so God's promises are being fulfilled in the church today. So that's just a kind of thumbnail sketch regarding what amillennialism teaches. And uh, I, I felt I needed to address this for a few reasons. And the first is that this kind of teaching seems to be growing in popularity among evangelicals, uh, maybe especially among younger uh, evangelical Christians. As I say, it's um, historically it's been in some of the other branches of Christianity, but it seems to be making inroads among evangelical Christians. Uh, and that's very, very concerning because it's a profoundly false system of teaching. Uh, it's what uh, Paul in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, refers to as a system of error. Uh, actually, it's quite an evil teaching. Uh, and it does so much to rob Christians of a proper faith in God's word and a proper faith in God's promises. But what it does do is that it makes it easier, somewhat easier, to say that you believe the Bible. Because if you don't um, say that these promises are going to be literally fulfilled in the future, you can just write off so much of the scripture that, that seems hard to believe. And some of the things in Revelation are pretty wild. The, the things are going to be happening or the promises to Israel in the Old Testament. How can those be fulfilled? Uh, so if you take this way, uh, believing in amillennialism, well, the, you don't have to believe those things. You can say, well, this is, uh, the Bible says this and this and this, but that's, it's not real, um, really going to be fulfilled. These are all symbolic things, so we don't really have to expect that these are going to have their fulfillment in the future. And so, as I say, it does so much to rob Christians of a genuine uh, faith in God's word. On the one hand, it's it, in itself, it's a very, very false teaching, and we're going to get into some of the reasons why that is. But in a larger sense, it just robs Christians of a, of a proper faith in God's word. And it's so destructive. Um, and I would say in particular, one of the ways in which it uh, really uh, undermines the faith is a great aspect of our hope as believers is that Christ is coming to establish his kingdom on this present earth. And as the believers in Christ, and we've talked about this in some of the recent podcasts, our commitment from God today is to stand with him for him to bring his kingdom to the earth. That's the gospel we preach. The gospel we preach today is the kingdom of the heavens, where the heavens rule over the earth. And today that's happening in a mysterious way. But in the future, it's going to happen in an open way. Christ is going to openly come and bring his kingdom to the earth and rule on this present earth. Well, that's a big part of our hope. But according to amillennialism, that's never even going to happen. Uh, and so, so we... We don't have any reason to really labor with Christ to bring his kingdom to the earth because according to amillennialism, that's not what he's doing. So this is a really, as I say, profoundly misguided teaching and profoundly damaging teaching. 
to believers, and we really need to expose just how false and unbiblical this uh, evil system of teaching really is. Uh, and that's on the negative side. Uh, but there is a positive aspect too, a positive reason too for getting into this, which is as we deal with this false teaching, my hope is we'll have a much better sense of how we should come to the Bible as believers in Christ, how we should trust the Lord's word, first of all. And secondly, uh, and this is maybe a little bit of a bonus, but I'm hoping that we can use this uh, whole matter to illustrate how God uh, recovers and develops his truth for his children, um, both in the Bible and in history, the history of the church, uh, and how he's doing that today. Because it's very important to have a proper understanding of this. God has a particular way for developing his truth to his children. And to really appreciate uh, his truth today and what has been recovered, we need to have a basic understanding of that. Now, full disclosure, uh, I'm doing this program in segments. I'll do a segment and then stop and uh, then record another segment. Uh, you know, when you're doing the radio program, you can't do that, of course. Uh, I had to sit down at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning, and you had one hour. And you had to, it was just one shot, so you had to go through it. And that was, uh, the advantage of that was, of course, it was a real discipline. You had to be ready to go. And uh, and you you did the one take, and, and that was it. Uh, to do this now, just as a podcast that you pre-record, it, it's different, and... Uh, it's another kind of challenge where you you really have to think about what you're saying, and so I'm I'm doing a segment and preparing for that segment, and then I'll stop and do another segment. And so, uh, as I prepared for this next segment, what I realized is there's a lot to get into before we start to cover specifically the different uh, errors in the teaching of amillennialism. So we'll break this program into two parts and deal with the specific errors of amillennialism in the next program. And in this, the rest of this program, we're just going to kind of lay some groundwork to prepare us for doing that. And the first point uh, I want to, to deal with is, is this matter of how God develops his truth. It's so crucial for us to understand that. If we want to enter into the truth for ourselves today, you know, one of the uh, objections that the amillennialists have, and again, sorry, hard to pronounce that. Uh, one of the objections that the amillennialists have against dispensationalism is that it's a fairly recent development in uh, biblical understanding. And that's true. Uh, it really only came about around the 1800s with John Nelson Darby and the, and the Plymouth Brethren uh, in modern times. In contrast, uh, amillennialism uh, has been around really since about uh, 400 A.D., and that's when uh, the great theologian Augustine of Hippo, the Bishop of Hippo, adopted it as his framework for the end times. And ever since then, amillennialism has been the predominant view of the end times in basically most uh, branches of Christianity, whether it's the, the Roman Catholic Church or the Orthodox Church, uh, they have taught amillennialism. And when the Reformers came along, they basically adopted the amillennial view of the Catholic Church and of Augustine. They broke with the Roman Church, of course, in a, uh, a number of ways, but not in terms of its teaching concerning the end times. And here's where uh, I really want to 
take the opportunity to consider how God develops his truth. You know, anyone who studies the Bible in a serious way will recognize that uh, the divine revelation in the Bible is progressive. No truth in the Bible is ever developed all at once in one place. You always have to look at different places of the Bible, sometimes both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, to really get a full picture of any given biblical truth. It's not developed in a systematic way. That's just how God has done it. Like the prophet Isaiah says, here a little, there a little, line upon line, line upon line. That's a real principle in terms of how God develops his truth. It's progressive. And to be honest, that's one of the great testaments to the divine inspiration of the Bible. You know, you have the Koran was basically just one man who came along and, and he, he wrote a book and he said, this is what God had told him, you know, we're supposed to do. Uh, well, you know, the Bible is not like that. It, it took uh, 40 writers over a period of about 1,500 years to develop the narrative in the Bible in a progressive way. And yet it is one cohesive narrative, always uh, moving forward and always developing. And yet it has a central uh, strain that leads always towards the same conclusion. And that's a strong proof of the divine inspiration of the Holy Scriptures in the Bible. It's really a, a remarkable testament that only God could do that. Only God could have taken that way to, to give us his word. So the development of the truth in the Bible is progressive. Well, that's also true in church history in terms of how God recovers his truth. It's not all at once. It's progressive the recovery of the truth. Now, what I mean by the recovery of the truth is that uh, there's no new divine revelation today. The divine revelation was closed around 90 AD or 95 AD when the Apostle John wrote the book of Revelation. You can't add anything to that. And of course, the the book of Revelation ends with a strong warning against adding anything to the divine revelation or taking anything away from it. But Uh, After that time, after the divine revelation was completed, uh, so much of the truth that's in the Bible concerning the Christian faith and the Christian life was lost because you had the rise of the Roman church, the pagan Roman church, um, insisting that it was the authority for uh, how we should live the Christian life, not the Bible. And because of that, the, the truth that was in the Bible was lost for so many centuries. Now, that was during a period that's uh, often referred to as the Dark Ages. And it wasn't until many centuries later that God began to recover the believers back to his truth. And I do want to just insert a word here that it seems like, you know, I, even as I say that, you have to say it seems like uh, all throughout history there have always been at least some believers on the earth who have been faithful to uh, at least something of the divine revelation in the scriptures concerning the Christian life. These little groups here and there who did not go along with Romanism, but they they lived in the New Testament simplicity, more or less. They may have had a little bit of the truth, a little more, a little bit less, but they they were really uh, uh, worshiping the Lord and following him, at, at least somewhat according to the New Testament revelation. And there's an excellent book about this, um, by a man named E.H. Broadbent that was written in 1930. It's called The Pilgrim Church, which talks about some of these groups throughout church history. And if you can get a copy of that, I really would 
recommend that you uh, read that. Uh, it's very, very worthwhile to get into. I'll, I'll try to link to that uh, in the program description here, but sometimes it goes out of print. But if you can get a copy, I really encourage you to do that. It's very um, helpful to realize God has always had some people, at least, who were faithful to him and did not go along with uh, the idolatry and paganism of the Roman church. Thank the Lord for that. But in terms of the public recovery of the truth, that really didn't begin to happen until the 1300s. And it probably began, so far as we can tell, with John Wycliffe. And a little bit after him, you had John Huss. Uh, Huss, of course, was martyred at the stake. Uh, Wycliffe was also persecuted. But both of these men stressed the authority of the scripture. They said, no, the church is not the authority for Bible for teaching about the Christian life. Our authority has to be scripture. And whatever the church says has to line up with what scripture shows us. And that was a very, very big uh, recovery, the start of the recovery. John Wycliffe has been called the morning star of the Reformation. Then uh, that laid the basis. The work of these men and those who were with them laid the basis for the great recovery that took place in the 1500s under Martin Luther and those with him uh, of the truth of justification by faith. We're not justified by works, we're justified by faith. And that shows how God was beginning to recover the believers back to his truth step by step. Now here now here we need to see something of the structure uh, uh, of how God has been recovering his truth. And uh, um, this impressed me as I was considering this matter. Uh, and to do this, we we can look at uh, First Thessalonians, First Thessalonians chapter one. In, in verses nine and ten of that chapter, the Apostle Paul tells the the believers in Thessalonica. Uh, he, he refers uh, to how they turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for His Son from heaven. And so, in these verses, First Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, we see the, the three basic aspects of the, the structure of the Christian life. The first is that we turn to God from idols. The second is that we serve the living and true God. And the third is that we wait for his son from heaven. Now, it's quite interesting. At the beginning of First Thessalonians, chapter 1, you see the basic elements of the content of the Christian life. And in First Thessalonians chapter one verse three, Paul uh, refers to the Thessalonians and their their work of faith, their labor of love, and their endurance of hope. So there you have uh, faith, love, and hope, and these three elements correspond to the the structure of the Christian life. Faith, of course, is by faith that we turn to God from idols, and. Uh, Paul, in, in 1 Thessalonians 1, Paul says that he refers to our labor of love. So it's by love that we serve the living and true God. And of course, hope relates to our waiting for the Son of God from heaven. Praise the Lord. So these, uh, these three elements of the contents of the Christian life go very much together with the three elements of the structure of the Christian life. Well, what you see that the Lord was doing at the time of the Reformers, he was recovering the first aspect of the structure of the Christian life, which is 
this turn to God from idols. That's what the reformers did by faith. Really striking. Of course, that was their great recovery, was the truth of justification by faith. And on that basis, they were able to turn from the idolatry of the Roman church to serve, uh, uh, turn to God from the idolatry of the Roman church. And that was a great recovery. That's what the Lord committed to them. That was what the Lord committed uh, them to do, was to recover this truth of justification by faith. Now, I want you can look at this another way. Uh, I would say that you could say it, which is, you know, in the Bible, God's work is always dispensational. He works with different people according to different dispensational arrangements at different times. You know, in the Old Testament, in the New Testament, in the Kingdom Age, all of those are different dispensational arrangements. Well, in church history, God's work is also dispensational. So we can say in the 1500s, God had a dispensational move to recover the truth of justification by faith. That was his dispensational work at that time. You know, in First Peter uh, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 12, uh, the Apostle Peter uses a, a very interesting expression. He, he, he talks about the believers being established in the present truth. Well, the present truth, you know, of, of course, we appreciate all the truth in the scriptures, but it does seem sometimes God is emphasizing a particular truth that he wants the believers to really embrace. And it, you see that very clearly in the 1500s when the truth that was being embraced was the truth of justification by faith. Praise the Lord. And as I say, that was what the Lord really gave to the reformers. You know, they just adopted the uh, view of the end times that the Orthodox Church had had, that the Roman Church had always had. They didn't develop anything new. Uh, as I said, they simply picked up that view because that's not what the Lord committed to them. But the Lord has gone on since then, and that's what we need to realize. He recovered this first uh, aspect of the structure of the Christian life through the Reformers. That's what he gave to them, as I said, this uh, turning to God from idols. Based on that, in the subsequent centuries, the believers really began to serve the living and true God. And you see that uh, in the Pietists in the 1600s, and especially with Madame Guyon, that uh, uh, the Piet, you know, Luther was frustrated because he taught the truth of justification by faith, but he didn't see many people living a holy life. Well, the Pietists who came after, they were mainly in Germany, I think, uh, they also saw that, and they began to sense, we, 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 we need to live a holy life. We can't just talk about justification. We have to have some kind of uh, holiness in our daily living. And Madame Guyon was the one who really began to see the way to have a genuine living of the Christian life was by experiencing Christ as our inner life. And so many brothers who have followed after, in the centuries after, uh, very well-known brothers, have been very much helped uh, by Madame Guyon in this matter of knowing Christ as their inner life. Praise the Lord for that. That was a huge recovery. Uh, and then you had, in, in the 1700s, you had uh, the Count... Count Zinzendorf and the Moravian Brethren began to see something of the corporate aspect of the Christian life. We're not just to be individuals. God wants us uh, to be built up together with our fellow believers. 
uh, and they, they practiced something of a, a communal living for a while, and uh, they really began to really serve the Lord by by sending out missionaries. They, they had this hundred-year-long prayer, um, uh, and, and uh, other others went out as well. That's when you, the, the great missionary movement began was in the 1700s, because what the Lord was recovering in this period of church history was this matter of serving the living and true God. So the reformers recovered the matter of uh, uh, turning to God from idols, and those who followed after, the Lord used to bring to the next stage in his recovery, which was to serve the living and true God. Well, it wasn't until the 1800s that the Lord finally began to recover the last aspect of the structure of the Christian life, which is to wait for his son from heaven. And that was when he raised up uh, John Darby and the Plymouth Brethren, and they were the ones who really began to see something of what the Bible shows us concerning the end times. They were the ones who began to see uh, that Christ is going to establish his kingdom on the earth. He is going to fulfill the promises to Israel in a physical, literal way, through Christ reigning on the throne of David for that 1,000-year period. That was what the Lord, one of the aspects that the Lord used the brethren to recover. Now, they saw a lot more. It wasn't just that. They really saw, began to see some things about God's desire to have the body of Christ and a, much, a great deal of topology and other matters as well. Uh, so much. The Lord really blessed them in so many ways. But the, the point of all this is to see God has always been progressing and moving forward. And our understanding of the uh, truth that's in the Bible should always be progressing and moving forward as well. And we want to be sure we are in uh, the present truth that the Lord has for us. We, he, because we shouldn't just stay in what he recovered in the 1500s. And, and the unfortunate thing, you know, the problem with uh, amillennialism is not so much that the reformers didn't... Uh, uh, change their view about that, because as I said, that's not what the Lord committed to them. They were faithful to what the Lord gave to him, gave to them. The problem is with the ones who came after, who did not uh, advance any farther than that. They insisted on holding on to that amillennial view, even when the Lord had done a further recovery. And they, it's like they can't imagine that the Lord has anything else to recover. And, and that's a tragedy. And so they're, um, they're holding on to something, even though the Lord has shown us so much more. So the objection that the amillennialists have to dispensationalism, that it's a more recent development uh, in terms of the truth, really doesn't carry any weight because this is what we should expect to see, that God is going on and recovering his truth more and more as time goes on, uh, just as in the Bible, the revelation is also progressive. So I want to end this, uh, this program with this quote. And this is a statement that's helped me a great deal for a number of years. Um, I'll just read it and then, uh, and then maybe add some comments about it. Now, this is from the book Philip Jacob Spainer and His Work. And it's by Marie Richard. Uh, and it was written in 1897. It was published in 1897. And Spainer was one of the pietists that I mentioned earlier who uh, lived in the 1600s. And so it's a biography of Mr. Spainer. Uh, and uh, a brother, another brother pointed this out to me a number of years ago and uh, to some other brothers as well, and I've always appreciated it. So here's what uh, 
Ms. Richards, Ms. Richards says, The follower of a great benefactor moves forward developing his work. The imitator stands immovable and only poses beside it. During the century which, which succeeded their death, the reformers had no followers. No one received again the fervent and creative spirit of their action. They had ready imitators who clung to the dry husks of an empty faith, finding the letter where their heroic predecessors had found the spirit. These made of Luther's glorious theology, which had been framed as an expression of inner life, a philosophy of religion, whose importance was its correct and orthodox expression and its intellectual apprehension rather than its influence upon life and conscience. Luther and Calvin were quoted oftener than Christ and Paul. The scriptures were forgotten for the creeds, and those sources of spiritual enlightenment from which should have flowed broad streams of truth became as stagnant pools of bitter waters. It is really so. Instead of moving forward and continuing to develop the spirit of what the Reformers recovered, so many who have followed after them have simply clung, as uh, Ms. Richards says, to the dry husks of an empty faith. We can't do that. If we want to be those who are really following the Lord today, we have to always be moving forward. And I've had my own experience of this uh, in my own following of the Lord. You know, uh, the temptation just to, to stand pat based on all the things we've received from the past. If we really mean business with the Lord, if we really want to follow him, we have to rise up and uh, begin to serve him according to the spirit of those who have gone before, not simply according to the letter of what they recovered. In other words, we're following them according to the inward reality of what they had, not according to the outward form. And we hope by the Lord's mercy and by the Lord's grace, that's what we can do. Then the Lord's work will have a way to go forward. Otherwise, uh, uh, he'll be finished with us and he'll have to go on and find someone else to, to serve him. And so that's the lesson we can learn here from uh, the history of amillennialism and the refusal that some have had to go on to see something more of what the Lord has recovered since the time of the Reformation. And that's, uh, as I said, that was the, one of the lessons I was really hoping to bring forth from considering this matter, hopefully in a positive way. And so that's going to do it for uh, this edition of the podcast. And, uh, you know, again, sorry, we've just uh, probably uh, too much to, to get into the specific points, as I said, regarding amillennialism. But as the Lord allows, we will do that in the next program. And we hope you will be back with us then. Until then, may the Lord keep you in his grace. Amen. You've been listening to the Christian Faith Radio Hour. You can visit us online at our website, thechristianfaith.org. And if you have comments or questions, send us an email at questions at thechristianfaith.org. And to listen to previous editions of this program, look for the Christian Faith Radio Hour podcast, which you can access via our website under the Media tab or directly on iTunes or Spotify.